what we consider to be democracy is not, and it's threatening our country. And that's what I'm doing. I'm the little guy here in front of the tank saying, wait a second, this is crazy. We have seen what this process around primaries has produced in terms of Donald Trump, George Wallace, and more is coming. It is coming. And we need to question it. It's not democratic. There's a better direction. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Larry Jacobs. He is a political scientist who is director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota, where he's at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Larry has written numerous books, scholarly articles, and essays on American democracy, politics, and policy. His latest book is Democracy Under Fire, Donald Trump and the Breaking of American History. The book is thought-provoking, historical, and contrarian. And Larry has an interesting story with a different take on what's wrong with our system. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, Larry Jacobs. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Larry, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor of political science at University of Minnesota. I was in the Department of Political Science for about 15 years, and the last uh, 17 I've been in the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is School of Public Affairs, University of Minnesota. I started out doing quite a bit of research in health policy, which I continue, and I've always been interested in kind of the politics of health policy. So my first book was looking at a comparison of the making of the Medicare Act and the making of the British National Health Service Act. Very different, of course, but similar sorts of politics. Um, and that fascinated me. That makes sense. Tell me a little bit about like where you grew up and your educational path that took you to being a professor. So I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and I still identify as a Brooklynite. I went to school you know, the beginning of uh, elementary school. And then my parents moved a lot of people out, out of Brooklyn to northern Westchester, which is where I more or less grew up, a small town called Croton-on-Hudson. It was a railroad town. Uh, now it's a commuter town. I worked my way through college working on the railroad there during the summers. And during the school year, I went to Oberlin College in Ohio and met my wife, Julie Schumacher. Our freshman year, of classes. Uh, I was in, the, in a English class. I was on a wrestling team too. And we went off on a two week jaunt to wrestle around the Midwest. The professor said, you're going to need help. You know, ask 
Miss Schumacher, she'll lend you her notes. She promptly said no, <laughs> which set up an interesting dynamic. And um, eventually she let me look at her notes, but had to sit outside her door in a way in which she could see my back as I was copying her notes. And that was the beginning of, uh, you know, we're still married all, after all these years. Was she worried you were going to abscond with the notes? There are always stereotypes of, of athletes, and I, I'm sure she fit me into one of them. Um, well, my brother was an excellent wrestler and, and a college wrestler and also a extremely intelligent and kind, gentle person, really. So I have a sense that that can happen. Yes, it is. And hopefully some of those traits have rubbed off on me. We moved from Oberlin to New Mexico, where we lived for a year. Had a great time, loved New Mexico. And then I got into Columbia University and we moved to New York. Um, and um, I ended up getting my PhD at Columbia. And meanwhile, Julie Schumacher went to Cornell to get a master's in fine arts. And then we both ended up moving to Minnesota in 1988 where Julie is now a regents professor and I'm a professor in the Humphrey School. So we're both landed in a nice spot and love the Twin Cities. It's a nice story. I understand that you started something called the Center for Study of Politics and Governments. You were a founder of that. What is that and why was that something you tackled? So when I was recruited to the Humphrey School in 2005, the Humphrey School was dominated by economists, and the new dean of the Humphrey School thought it'd be a good idea for politics to be part of the study of public affairs. And he asked me as I came over to build this program around politics. So we do events several dozen a year. We work with the legislature and other folks in the political process. I started about a dozen years ago a program to train folks to go into the administration of elections. So all the stories that we're reading about election officials being targeted by Republicans and Trumpers, we were years ahead of this. We were training people, nonpartisan, professional election administrators. And now the program's up and running. We've got 120, 140 student enrollment. Um, and it's the only program of its kind in the country. I read that you kind of grant a certificate to people. What will they have learned if they have such a certificate? Yeah, if you take the full 12 credit load, you get a certificate in election administration. The program trains you to run elections. It starts from soup to nuts about who's eligible, how do you register people, how to run election day, and then what happens after election day in terms of certification and the audits that go on. It's a very encompassing program. We've got a concentration in security, both the hardware, but also cyber attacks. And it's taught by people who are running these programs, both in Washington and in the state level. We've got kind of bread and butter public administration courses about how to be more effective and efficient with resources. It's really kind of nitty gritty. There's a little bit of kind of big think, but a lot of it is just, how do you do this? Okay. Here's how you do it. And our students are getting jobs, those who want them, in election administration all over the country. Is it your sense that there are places where people are feeling intimidated out of that kind of work? What are you hearing kind of from the field? 
Oh, it's horrible. One of my uh, instructors uh, has had death threats, a number of death threats. The FBI is, has a watch on him. This is a guy who plays by the rules. You know, we have a conference. He's in the room 10 minutes early because he's an election official and plays by the rules. When I started this, I had no idea we were going to descend to this kind of nonsense and really um, illegality. But now we're here. We are a program that's now trying to rejuvenate election administration. And because there is a turnover in terms of uh, retirements, it's a great way to also diversify the field of elections. So we're putting a big emphasis on recruiting people of color to become election officials. And that's going to be a long-term project. Not too long ago, I interviewed Kim Brace, who runs Election Data Services, who's had an interest in election administration for a long time. And I remember asking him about the people in the field, and I felt like he was moved almost, almost to tears to an emotional reaction about like the efforts that people are putting in out there trying to keep the democracy just doing the nitty-gritty that it's supposed to do. You know, a lot of working people have jobs and... Um, it's easy to kind of uh, lose a sense of what you're doing, and that's often you know, justified by the way you're treated. Election officials are one of those areas where the work is sometimes quite mundane. You're counting pieces of paper, but there is a passion to it and a sense of mission that's extraordinary. There was a, a conference we held a couple of weeks ago with the top election officials in the country around misinformation and conspiracy theories and how election officials should address them because the instinct of election officials is to ignore it. Their job is just to do the work. Well, we're in a new era, and doing the work means you have to be publicly engaged. And during this conversation, one of the senior election officials said, someone told her after one of their kind of media spats, relax, this is just a job. You know, we can be friends outside of it. And she said, not a job. This is my life. This is the heart of our country. And how dare you take it so frivolously, what you're doing. You're harming America. And I see that attitude all the time. I mean, this is a very devoted group of people, and we're lucky. It must be very frustrating to communicate the nuts and bolts of it to people who are somehow immune to logic and information. It's a big challenge right now. It is. And this conference, in which party is this not part of it, it it's like, here are the rules, and then there's conversations about how to follow the rules. And there are disagreements, but it's it's not about party in any way. We had three or four Republicans, just by their identification, who were part of the program. And they were later criticized for not being loyal to the Republican Party. And they were very upfront in responding and saying, our loyalty is to the law of the country. Are you aware of any effort to train people to subvert the process? Well, I don't know of universities in that business. We're in the business of training people to run the process fairly and by the law. But I think, you know, there are certainly militias out there. There are online groups that are well-organized, that are propagating a strategy for undermining democracy and rule of law. Yeah. And I think actually the investigations in Congress and by the Justice Department are revealing a fairly substantial, wide-ranging conspiracy on the part of militias and others to undermine the electoral process in 2020. And I would assume a lot of that is continuing. It's very horrible. If you ha 
had to characterize your career as a professor, which is a lot of books, a lot of articles, a lot of teaching. What's the work that you've done that's most central to your research? And what's your core interest? You know, I think I was asked some kind of a similar question when I was younger, probably. And my answer would be, I can't decide. I'm involved in so many things. And I like and, and admire and am passionate about all of them. The core of my research has been around questions of democracy in a very concrete way. I read a lot of democratic theory, but I'm also very interested in how our process of democracy filters into how we make public policy and even detailed policies around, let's say, health policy. I've also become more interested over the last couple of decades about threats to American democracy. I chaired a, a task force by the American Political Science Association that looked at just those sort of things, the threats to American democracy. And this was back really two decades ago. Um, a book I wrote with, with Bob Shapiro called Politicians Don't Pander. It wasn't that politicians don't listen to polls. It's that they listen to polls to try to undermine the democratic process by using strategies of manipulation. And then the more recent work I've been doing, including Democracy Under Fire, is squarely aimed at the threats to our democratic process and the accessibility to demagogues who would undermine it. I read your book, the recent one, Democracy Under Fire. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I kind of grappled with it as I was reading it because it came at the history of parties and elections from a different angle than the standard story that I've read before, particularly in how you think about uh, primary elections. I'd always kind of accepted this notion that the move to primary elections over time was a positive development generally, that it was part of the gradual opening up of the country to a broader electorate. And you would hear like, well, the cure to the ills of democracy is more democracy, things like that. That's not really the viewpoint of this book. You start out by kind of going through the different sort of democratic regimes in the country. Can you talk us through like those separate points in time and how we've constituted the arrangements of how we pick our leaders. Yeah. You know, I, I start the book with Donald Trump and the most remarkable thing about Donald Trump, apart from the craziness that he's displayed is how did he get nominated to be president? And if you go back to 2015 and 2016, the reactions of the Republican leadership with only one or two exceptions was he is unfit to be president. And many of the characteristics of Trump, his disregard for the Constitution, his illegalities, his conduct, these were identified in 2015 and 16 as he was a candidate to be the Republican nominee. All this was known. And yet he was still nominated. And the folks who opposed him as a candidate because he was unfit once he became president, they fell in line behind him and still are behind him. The question is why? How could Donald Trump, who was a known renegade and someone who threatened the Constitution, the rule of law, how could he be nominated by one of the major parties in America? And 
For me, the answer lies in the nomination process and direct primaries. And I started out writing this book thinking, oh, it'll be a simple answer. I can just go to 1970 when there was an important reform. And I realized, no, it actually doesn't start here. It has to do with the progressive era. And I went back to the progressive era and I realized, well, actually there was a debate here, but there are parts of this debate that go back earlier. And so I landed in the late 1700s when there was a truly open, vibrant debate about what democracy would look like. And I think one of the most interesting and maybe underappreciated moments in American democratic history occurs shortly after the the Declaration of Independence in 1776, and it's in the states. In the states, we start to see what I think could be fairly characterized in certain respects as strong democracy. We see farmers and laborers who had never been in politics standing up and running for office. Once they're in office, community groups who had helped elect them but also were organizing communities were uh, giving them instructions. We're electing you, but here's what we need. We need you to lower or eliminate these taxes that are falling on farmers who are near bankruptcy. We need you to print more money to help reduce the burden of debt on these farms. We need you to help us get milk to feed our children. I mean, it was really... And the legislators who would not follow those instructions, they were voted out of office. Now, this system of really vibrant democracy in the 1760s and 1780s was noticed. And the kind of ruling gentry, um, and especially people like James Madison, were alarmed. And they, in a very clandestine way, hatched a plot. The plot was to hold a constitutional convention under the false premises of just doing some fixing up of the existing confederation. And they pulled that off. And once they were kind of locked in a room in Philadelphia in 1787, they came up with a radical plot, which was to essentially eliminate what they considered to be excess democracy, eliminate the possibility of states responding to this really progressive economic agenda. And that puts us on a path to the kind of institutional system we have today, where we have representative democracies, but we also have very significant checks on the scope of what states can do, particularly around economic issues. So for instance, it's not widely discussed, but in the constitution, states are barred from printing money. And this has often been talked about you know, with regards to the need for a national government to have control over currency it makes sense. But if you put it in the context of the 1780s, it was a radical step to disarm the states from responding to farmers and laborers. It reflects this effort to try to control what was going on in terms of democratic politics. I mean, I've always had the sense that that putting things like the control of money in the national government was a good idea. Do you disagree with that? You're kind of viewing this particular thing through that lens of how we govern more than the policy. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly think from the perspective of the 21st century, having national control over the currency is essential. What's the alternative? But I think it's also important to understand the political power move that was going on in the 1780s. And it was geared to disarming democracy. And so you hear a lot of people today saying, um, you know, our politics is so hard to get much done. There's so much division and deadlock and stalemate. 
this is not an accident. This was designed. This is exactly what Madison had hoped for when he saw what was going on in the 1770s and 80s, which was a lot getting done, but from an economic redistributive sense. And so he was looking for ways to, to bog things down. I think the currency is an example of that for that period in the 1780s. I'm not recommending we return to what uh, was going on then. I, it, it wouldn't be possible in a, in a modern uh, financial system. So how do Jefferson and Jackson fit in the steps that they push things forward in how we develop our institutions? So after the Constitution is ratified and you have George Washington serving two terms, the form of American democracy was still nascent. There was a lot of doubt as to whether those who opposed the ratification of the Constitution, which were large in number and very influential, whether they would abide by the new Constitution or they would continue their opposition and maybe it could turn violent. We didn't know these things. But after the two Washington terms, there was largely an acceptance of this new system, but it wasn't clear what it would look like particularly because Washington was kind of a, quote unquote, consensus choice among the white males who were running the system then. The 1796 election was the first contested election. And you had uh, Washington's vice president, John Adams, uh, opposed by uh, Thomas Jefferson, who had been secretary of state under Washington. And it was a ferocious battle it was a confusing result that was ultimately determined in the House of Representatives, and Adams was declared president. Thomas Jefferson was enraged uh, for a lot of reasons, one of which was he didn't think much of Adams, and he thought the election had been stolen. So he then turns to the mechanism that, that Jefferson and others had dismissed earlier, which was political parties. And Jefferson in a sense, weaponizes political parties into a mass mobilizing organization. This is the first time that had been done. It was an innovation. And the idea was to turn out eligible voters who were, again, white males, and in some states who met certain income and, and land qualifications. Um, and he increases turnout by 50% in what is known as the Revolution of 1800. And Jefferson is launched into power. So this is the beginning of kind of mass democracy in America, and it's important for a lot of reasons, one of which is it is the opening of political parties as a centerpiece for uh, our system. The next key moment is uh, with Andrew Jackson, who was, he was a renegade in every respect. Uh, this is not someone to emulate. Uh, I know um, we had Donald Trump trying to elevate him. But this is a guy who was responsible for the slaughter of hundreds and hundreds of Native Americans who disregarded laws when he didn't find them to be his liking. And he runs in the 1824 election, which was stolen for sure. Jackson had more electoral college votes and popular vote. But again, it fell into the House because he didn't have uh, the sufficient number of electoral college votes. And Quincy Adams, John Adams' son, was declared president. You can kind of see this pattern with the Adamses. They can't win fairly. Well, Jackson was outraged, and they were as worried that Jackson might turn to force. He was so angry, and he was a uh, you know, renegade. Maybe he would storm Washington. That didn't happen, but he, with the help of Martin Van Buren, 
a very smart political operator, create a whole new set of institutions to really amplify the ability of parties to turn out votes. And in the election of 1828, Jackson increases popular turnout by threefold over what had been in 1824. Massive turnout. And there are terrific stories about the populace descending on the White House, climbing in through the windows and having a kegger there. Seems like there's this tension from the beginning between opening up the the process to the largest number of people and insulating it from the thoughtlessness of the masses as elites see it. Absolutely. And and that that is exactly at this moment when you're having truly a, a mass democracy. And the concern, again, that was launched by James Madison about how to avoid excess democracy, how to channel it in ways in which it would not be threatening. And the innovation under Jackson was the idea of a party convention. And the National Party Convention was advertised the people's choice, uh, which was a fiction. But the, the concept behind it was to try to weed out who would be the candidates. And again, try to identify candidates who would be responsible, who would follow the, the Constitution, the rule of law. A little ironic coming from Jackson. Very ironic. <laughs> and, and behind Jackson was Martin Van Buren, who was the brains um, and really was the innovator of this um, idea of a national uh, party convention. So you could think of this evolution from mass democracy and parties to party conventions and the orientation towards incorporating popular politics in the internal mechanisms of political parties, which is odd because in Europe and elsewhere in the world, the emphasis is on the competition between parties, not what was going on within parties. And in America, it's this moment that's important, in my view, because we see this kind of redirecting of national democratic energy from what was going on outside the parties, like the strong democracy in the states in the 1780s, to this process that is step-by-step incorporating politics within the bureaucracy of political parties. The next sort of stage you identify is with the progressive era around the turn of the century, where they push, among other things, for direct primaries, Robert La Follette being the uh, key leader in that. Tell me about that. So after Jackson puts in place these national party conventions, they quickly catch on and they're, they're in place by both parties for decades, but they're taken over by what are known as political machines. Um, and particularly in the big cities, but elsewhere, you see uh, a few leaders coming to power using patronage to control who's, what's going on in the city, but also who's being nominated. And they use the party convention. So the kind of the image of a political party as smoke-filled rooms, deals being cut, that's from this era where there was substantial corruption. It was a, a trading of uh, chits. And it was back and forth. So that process um, creates a number of different dynamics, one of which was up-and-coming talent, political talent, like Robert LaFollette from Wisconsin. They're locked out because they're not willing to play by the party's rules. 
So here you've got a young, ambitious, early on politician who is locked out and he decides his path to power is going to be through reforming the party conventions and bringing power back to the people. This idea of the people, you know, I would just say put a flag around that because that's usually a uh, key that who's using those words is using it for their own benefit is throughout history, a warning that greater scrutiny is needed. And Will Follett's case, very compelling guy, terrific speaker, limitless energy. And he just put all of that behind attacking the uh, parties and the party conventions as corrupt and the need for primaries, which would allow voters to cast the ballot to select uh, who's going to be nominated. The political parties are not happy about that. And there is an ongoing war back and forth. Now, La Follette uses this campaign for his benefit. He's elected Congress. He's elected to governor of Wisconsin. He's then elected to the U.S. Senate and then tries to run for president. So this is not kind of an innocent who kind of walks off the streets and is swept up in reform politics. He's a calculating politician. And I'm not dismissing the fact that he had uh, righteous aims, but he was benefiting from this. And as he began to climb in national politics and the idea of primary started to climb and, and be adopted, a very interesting set of opponents emerged. And a number of them were in the states and in the cities that adopted primaries. And they were reporting alarming things like the people who were being nominated were corrupt, or the people who were being nominated didn't know much about government or administration, or they held uh, views about government and law that were not those that should be embraced in the country. They were joined by some of the towering progressive intellects of the time, particularly a guy named Herbert Crowley. And they argued that what La Follette was proposing in terms of direct primaries was a threat to democracy, that it was letting in these demagogues, it was encouraging a system that would put uh, reward on being in a faction rather than serving the country or serving what most people wanted. And this is not, not widely appreciated, but the primary system comes to a halt. And even though the idea is there, it largely doesn't have much power. So it's introduced 1900s, um, but by the 1920s it had plateaued and presidents and other candidates who were trying to use it to win nomination couldn't do it. Hubert Humphrey in 1968, he runs for president. He wins the nomination, never runs in a single primary. He's getting all of his delegates from caucus states? He's getting all of his delegates from the party machine. People that are appointed by the parties directly. Yeah, exactly. It's from the state parties directly. This is a holdover from the the party rule system that had had started to, to really settle in in the 19th century. But the key thing is that the power is in the hands of the parties, not in the hands of the candidates. And so Humphrey ignored the primary system altogether. Which frustrated the heck out of people trying to get other candidates who were outperforming or would have outperformed Humphrey in primaries, most likely. Yeah, 68 was a heck of a year. Uh, we had... Lyndon Johnson, the, just as the presidential race is starting, pulls out in March 1968. You've got um, a tremendous um, campaign 
that is launched also out of Minnesota um, by Humphreys, you know, fellow um, Minnesotan Democrat. You've got Robert Kennedy, who is running and then is assassinated. And then you arrive in Chicago, and the result of all of this is that Humphreys already locked it up, playing by the rules that have been around for more than a century. It wasn't anything sneaky. It was like you could have predicted this outcome, and many people did a year before because of the party rules and the fact that the insiders decided who was going to be the nominee. And it was a fiery convention in 1968. And writing this book and interviewing a bunch of people for it, you know, the the terror of what happened in 68 in Chicago Democratic Convention was so visceral. Some describe it as a police riot because the mayor of Chicago, Daly, uh, literally told the police to go beat up those who were in Chicago to protest what they saw as Humphrey's theft of the nomination. What comes out of that is the McGovern Commission to to reform the system by which we pick presidential nominees. You seem to be anything but a fan of that. Explain. So when Humphrey lost to Richard Nixon, very close election, he was dispirited and he basically disappeared. One of his campaign chiefs, uh, a guy named Fred Harris, who was a U.S. senator from Oklahoma, came to Humphrey and said, look, can you do me a favor? I'd like to be head of the Democratic National Committee. And the people around Humphrey said, don't do it. We don't trust this guy. And we were suspicious of his motives. Humphrey wasn't really following. He wasn't tracking. And he felt like, I'm going to do this guy, Fred Harris, a favor. He did me a favor and appoints him. And it turns out Fred Harris hated the Democratic Party and uh, saw no value for it and appoints George McGovern. Together, they put together a staff and they ram through um, a set of changes that move the, the selection of candidates from within the party to the uh, direct primaries in which the delegates are selected through primary elections, which is what we know today. Now, this is one of those key moments, a critical juncture. McGovern claimed that he was responding to what happened in 1968, which is utterly nonsense. In 68, at the convention, there was no talk of primaries. In fact, the, the main thrust of it, main thrust of the, the protest, certainly the Students for Democratic Society, Tom Hayden, you know, the real kind of organized intellectual left, they were opposed to this kind of institutionalized politics. That was the thrust of their argument. It was anarchistic, if anything. And so this idea of creating more bureaucracy and funneling politics into this internal process within the Democratic Party, that was not the spirit of 68. But it did fit McGovern, his own motivations, which was to be nominated in 1972. He couldn't have been nominated by the the Democratic Party because they didn't trust him for a whole lot of reasons, and particularly the organized labor component of the Democratic Party. And for a whole set of, of factors relating to Humphrey putting the wrong people in power, the dispirited reaction after the 68 loss, even among organized labor, people fell asleep at the switch. And this radical change was allowed to go through. I've worked for many years with Walter Mondale. We've taught together and so forth. And 
near the end of his life, Walter Mondale sat down with a number of interviews of me to go through that process. Because Mondale was the co-director of Humphrey's 68 campaign and was the main beneficiary of Humphrey's support. That's how uh, Mondale rose. He knew this story entirely. And he his take is pretty close to what I'm reporting. This was a, a terrible mistake. And often you get a criticism saying, wait a second, are you saying we should go back to smoke-filled rooms? No. But I don't know if the 1968 party was smoke-filled rooms. This was the party who had taken some radical steps on, on civil rights after the 1964 convention, which had locked out uh, Fannie Lou Hammer. They desegregated their party. They blocked out the segregationists from the South who ended up leaving the party. They then went ahead and passed historic civil rights legislation. And after um, Johnson's election, Medicare was passed. This is not a, a stale party out of step with the country. And there were a series of reforms being put in place to much more broadly reflect what was going on in the country. So I, I, I think this was a key moment. Um, and after this, American politics changes dramatically and not in the direction that McGovern had predicted. The party did not become more attuned to the people. It became more attuned to extremists. It seems to me like when you're talking about party in that description of 1968-72, you're talking about the party as organization. You're talking about, you know, the 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 Democratic committeemen, the the people that are running the party. Some people also think of the party in the electorate, the voters who come out for that party. I think it depends a little bit about what you what you think is the definition of the party when you think about who should participate and how. What's your feeling about that? How do you define party and what would you like to see happen? Well, there's no doubt that the uh, identification of voters with the party is a key component. It's, you know, at this point, it may be the only element of a party we have in America because the, the party as an organization is a bit of a fiction. The role of party within the governing system is very much a function of the primary system. What does that mean? That means that we are now entirely polarized. Our party identification, our ideology have, have now become sorted in a way that we've never seen before, at least to this degree. Here's an example. Dwight Eisenhower won election and re-election in the 1950s. It was at a time when identification of the Democratic Party was as at one of its high points. How could that happen? Because there were a lot of Democrats who were willing to vote for Humphrey because they saw him as a better choice. Eisenhower. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Eisenhower as a better choice. Um, and we saw this you know, era of what was known as split ticket voting, where you'd vote for one party and then another party. That doesn't happen uh, the way it once did. It's been dramatically reduced. And that's because our identification with the party is now much firmer. And so, yes, I agree that absolutely the, the key dimension of the party, maybe the key dimension of the party today is, is that identification with party in the electorate. I mean, it seems to me like People who are looking at the parties in the 50s and back around that time, 60s, were not happy with the fact that the parties were not sorted ideologically because it didn't give voters a good way to choose one side or the other and have a responsible party that, you know, was 
that had a platform that was understandable, that was completely different than the other one. Are you, are you opposed to the sorting ideologically of the, the parties? Well, that was certainly the position of a very famous task force re- report sponsored by the American Political Science Association uh, that basically called for more of a British system. And whether that would have worked in America, where we have different branches, separation of powers, whereas in Britain, of course, you've got a parliamentary system that's been debated for decades. I would say the main problem we have in America is, yes, the parties are aligned ideologically and they're separate. That's true. But the question is, is this reflecting what most Americans want? That's really the debate here. After McGovern puts in place primaries and it's adopted eventually by the Republicans and it dominates virtually all of our major elections, what we're seeing is an increasing amount of unresponsiveness. The preferences of voters are not lining up with what the party's doing. This is true in the Democratic Party, where you have liberals turning out at a higher rate than other members of the Democratic Party. But it's much more true in the Republican Party, where we're seeing that um, the most conservative, the Trumpist voters, those are the people who are turning out the most. And so these are low turnout elections. In a presidential election, which is like, you know, the, the festival of politics every four years, you know, all this attention around presidential elections. The turnout is only a quarter to a third. So the idea that that kind of ideological parties is what we want, it's not being shown by what's happening in terms of the turnout. Reality is we're getting a relatively small number of people who tend to be from certainly in the extreme on the Republican side and a bit more on the liberal side in the Democratic Party. They're making the choices for who's going to run for office. And that is the penultimate choice. In many elections, when you've got a state or a district that's going to vote one party or another, the only election that matters is that primary election, and that candidate is being dictated by a relatively small number of people. Most people who identify that problem often seek to just do a better job of getting out the people who aren't in a primary. Why isn't that the solution? Yeah, this has been talked about for a long time. There's just been so many presidential elections where uh, Howard Dean, you know, he's going to turn out the young people. It doesn't happen. It's just very hard to really charge people up. Bernie Sanders raised $211 million for his campaign in 2020. He told us he's going to create this revolution and the workers are going to turn out. It didn't happen. Voters have a lot going on in their lives. Uh, The reality, though, is that primary elections are vastly unequal. This is, a, this is a process that's created political inequality. And it's created that because a relatively small number of people are making the choices over who the nominee is going to be. And those people are pushing the process to the extremes, especially in the Republican Party. So it's a small number of people, but it's a much, much larger number of people than when it was confined within the party organization. What makes you think that there's a structure where it could be confined to a smaller group of people, insiders, that would functionally produce better results than opening it up, even if everyone doesn't take advantage of it? Yeah, it's a great question. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about taking us back 50 years. But I think it's very important 
very important focus on the motivations. If you are being nominated by a small group of, of ideologues, think of yourself as Donald Trump if you care to, that's one thing. Your motivation is to follow the people who are nominating you. 70% of the House representatives who are Republican voted not to certify the 2020 election, even though all the evidence showed that it was a fair outcome. Why did that happen? Because they know that if they didn't, they'd be facing a primary challenger, much as Liz Cheney is now. That's the incentive structure created by the primaries. In the political parties, it's very different. Political parties respond to how are you going to win? How are you going to win the general election? There's a famous theory in political science called the median voter theory. And it's oriented towards political parties. And we tend to, in a kind of sloppy way, apply it to individual candidates. But the idea is simple. The candidate tries to lock down their core support. And then to win elections, they compete towards the, the center point of public opinion. Those are the motivations of those in power. They want to win the general election. The motivation of the candidates selected in the primary process is almost the opposite. Their devotion is to the agenda, to the set of issues they've identified. And if they lose, many of those candidates will consider it a contribution towards advancing the issues they care most about. I mean, we still have a general election. Wouldn't a primary process that produces an extreme candidate who theoretically can't appeal to the median voter lose and therefore make people not want to vote that way? I mean, like the Democrats in 2020 in their nomination process seem to have thought that way by nominating Biden over Sanders, particularly. They seem to have bought collectively or been led collectively to buy that argument to, you know, that that Biden was a safer choice to win. So isn't that functioning in a certain regard, at least in one party? Yeah. Let's look at the other party, though. Donald Trump won in 2016. And he was the most unpopular candidate we've ever had, judging by polls. He won even though most voters outside the Republican Party found him to be inappropriate as a presidential candidate. It's just tons of polling on, on the disregard for this guy. And then that's the presidential election. If you go down and you look at the other elections, what we're finding is voters are, once they get past the nomination, they are just teaming up. I'm a Republican. I'm going to vote Republican. And I'm Democrat. For the most part, they vote Democrats. And we're seeing that tremendous affiliation and loyalty to the party uh, based on um, simply that, that partisanship. Now, what does that mean? That means that this year, the Republicans are nominating some secretaries of state, for instance, who don't believe in the laws of elections. They're fully on the Trump platform that the 2020 election was stolen. But I mean, isn't I mean, isn't just the case that 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 the broad electorate in the Republican Party feels that way, too? I mean, like, how would it even be fixed if in this moment, if it was being decided in a different way? Like if everybody turned out in a primary. Well, that's the key thing. The turnout is very low. And that's, that's you know, to me, that is the defining reality. That's low and it's disproportionately extreme, especially in the Republican side. Um, and that was what was introduced uh, by McGovern in 70. Um, you know, I, I think there's 
you know, quite different direction if parties had more influence over who was being nominated. And so in the Republican Party today, the leadership clearly believes that running on the 2020 election and how the election was stolen is a very bad idea. They're very happy to run on inflation, what a terrible job Joe Biden is doing. That, you know, kind of the, the campaign playbook, that's what you would do. Um, and when the roles have been reversed and Democrats were in the outs and they were running against an unpopular president, let's say George Bush in 2008, that's what they did. So this is the obvious thing to do, but the Republicans are being forced by Trump and the primary voters and their affiliation and loyalty to him to follow what is politically disadvantageous to the party. One of the reforms that's in current favor in, in some quarters, which you mentioned in your book, is uh, kind of the rank choice voting and some of the other related uh, reforms, top five going on, top four going on, things like that. You don't seem too enamored of that, even though the advocates for it think that it would get rid of that primary driving people to the fringe problem. What's your thinking about that kind of reform right now? So my, one of my core interests here is moving towards more political equality. In American democracy and elections, it is riven through with all sorts of disparities and turnout, you know, whites, better educated, higher income people turn out at much higher rates than those who aren't. And what do we do about that? Well, primaries just accentuate all of those bad things. In addition, it's giving more power to the extremes. And you look at ranked choice voting, which I have a lot of respect for, for that effort and for the passion of those reformers. I, we absolutely need reform in American democracy, no doubt about it. It's not anything close to an attack. It's just observing that with ranked choice voting, you're accentuating those disparities. And the number that when you look at, as I have with a colleague in Minnesota, we look at who is using their multiple opportunities to rank voters. You can rank voters three times or five times, depending on the jurisdiction. It's the whites, the better educated, and the higher income groups who tend to use all those opportunities to rank voters. And there are some voters that appear not to be turning out because they're so confused by the process and the large number of candidates. Is that a problem? Well, I think it is. We're creating a process that's more complicated, that is more taxing on voters. It has the threat of accentuating the disparities we already have. I think we are in real agreement that a process that allows a George Wallace to do well, that allows a Trump to do well, or you know Patrick Buchanan, or some of these people that are pretty outlandish and not uh, really subscribers to the democratic norms. I mean, it's traumatizing to watch what he's been doing for people who care about the democracy. If one of the pathways that made it easier for someone like that to get into power is primaries, what is then your suggestion about what we can do to both protect the country from demagogues and wannabe authoritarians or whatever, and also keep open the process to the broadest group of people making decisions on their own behalf. 
So there's a whole industry on reforms, and there are folks who write books on reforms, and you know it's kind of like the the figure skating Olympics. You know who can do a, a triple toe axle, and people get scored on you know how innovative and exciting the reform ideas. My only criteria is can it be done and done in the near future? And so here are some things I think can be done. One, I think we need to be much more skeptical of primaries as quote unquote democratic. I think they're undemocratic, and I would just encourage people to take a hard look at them and ask, is this really advancing American democracy, or is it opening the door to demagogues? Is it allowing those on the extremes, especially in the Republican Party, to have more influence than is appropriate in democracy? Just to stop on that, what is what would be more democratic than opening up the vote to pick to, the, to anybody who's willing to vote? For, for a candidate? Again, from this pragmatic point of view, what can be done? I think we need to take a look at the superdelegates and the um, pledge delegates on the Republican side. We can increase their number, not decrease it. And there's a lot of criticism from Donald Trump to Bernie Sanders, and it's obvious why they're doing it. They're candidates. They don't want those folks in the way. But those superdelegates and unpledged delegates they are focused on winning elections. They're focused on appealing to majority centrist opinion. That's a good thing. In our world, we refer to it as peer review. There's a kind of a peer review here. If Donald Trump had faced unpledged delegates of a certain, a larger proportion, it would have kept the other candidates in the game because they wouldn't have fallen out because they would have seen a, a path to blocking Trump. With unpledged delegates, the Republican Party being so small, there was no way to block Trump. So I think we need to take a hard look at expanding. I'm not talking about getting rid of the primaries. I'm saying let's let's look at incrementally expanding the number of of unpledged delegates and superdelegates. I think that would be a good thing and it would, it would create some check on the ideologues. It does seem like we're going the opposite direction on yep. that. Yep. 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 And I think it's partly because there hasn't been a fight over it. And I'm saying let's bring it on. Let's have a fight the people who think that that primaries and just turning it over to the primary voters is the good thing, well, you're bringing on Donald Trump. You're bringing on secretaries of state who are going to be devoted not to upholding election law but to undermining it. It's a it's a very bad path we're on. Do you think the cat's out of the bag to some degree with the Republican Party, where now the people who would be superdelegates or pledge delegates already are corrupted? and would not operate like you imagine that they would in a responsible way? It's possible. I think we have to test it. But I, I do know that Republican Party office holders are devoted to winning election. And I think just looking at 2022 and 2024, most of those people are, are thinking it's better for us, our own self-interest, that we run on Joe Biden. We run on the bad things in terms of the economy now not rerun 2020. It seems like such a matter of interpretation because I think there are so many Republicans who think that there was something about Trump that pulled out a lot of voters that made them more likely to win. I mean, they outperformed what they were expected to in 2020 at other levels of the ballot, right? It's going to be an awfully hard sell. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hard sell, but that that's the kind of fight we need. We need to fight for durable 
democratic institutions. And right now, there is no check on the demagogue who's going to step up next, run for president, and win the nomination. What happened with Donald Trump in 2016, it will happen again if we do nothing. And so I'm standing here waving my hand saying, we have a dire problem here. We've got to step up and we've got to have a debate on these primaries. They are a danger to our democracy. Wake up. Is there any other big suggestion you have to diminish that danger? Well, I think one thing is we exhaust our voters. We went and counted the number of elections for offices, municipal, local, state, federal. We got over half a million offices that are up for election. And voters are constantly casting ballots in America. They're exhausted. And the idea is the more elections, the more democracy. Well, it's just not true. We got lots of elections where almost no one turns out. And my suggestion was, is let's do an audit. It's been 100 years for a lot of these offices where no one's turning out. Let's start eliminating areas and, and create appointed offices where there are no elections. And if we can have a smaller number of decisive elections, I think we can increase turnout. Second, I, I think we need you know, to really take a hard look at the administration of elections. I think that needs to be a top priority for everybody who cares about elections. If you are threatening an election official, then you are a danger to our country and you ought to face the full wrath of the law. We ought to be, frankly, recognizing and promoting election officials in a way that we never have. We've ignored them. So I think if we take that more seriously, as we do when we're trying to promote democracy in other countries, we need to do it at home. Well, one thing I'm confident of is that you're wanting what most of us are wanting, which is protection institutionally from the bad guy persuading a bunch of people to vote for him. I hope we figure out a way to make that happen. I appreciate you taking the time today. Is there anything else you want to say? Well, I just appreciate this. And people sometimes ask me, well, who's going to support this? And you know, you look at the history of America, there's a lot of important reform movements that started with one person just standing up and saying, open your eyes. What we consider to be democracy is not, and it's threatening our country. And that's what I'm doing. I'm the little guy here in front of the tank saying, wait a second, this is crazy. We have seen what this process around primaries has produced in terms of Donald Trump, George Wallace, and more is coming. It is coming. And we need to question it. It's not democratic. There's a better direction. What's been the reaction to Democracy Under Fire so far? What are people saying when they read it and talk to you about it? I only hear from people who love it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that true? That's, no, I mean, that's yeah. convenient. No, I mean, it's, you know, I, I think the book works in a couple different ways. I think there's a popular argument. You've heard me making it. It's also, I mean, there's a pretty deep intellectual structure to it. I'm doing this kind of macro history sort of approach. I'm skipping over really the whole of American history since the 1700s. And so there's a kind of a regional epic periodization. Um, and I'm trying to incorporate that to show these longer patterns. There's a historical institutional dimension where I'm showing the power of, of kind of institutional patterning. There's a lot of terrific research, for instance, on the progressive era which I benefit from enormously in that chapter. But I think one of my contributions is to say, look, things that are attributed to the failings of the progressive era 
are actually articulations of processes that are already in effect before the progressive era. And I think that's it's one of the benefits of the macro-historical approach. And then I've got a big engagement with democratic theory, uh, which I take seriously. And I think there's been very important uh, work on deliberative democracy, which I've, I've written about in the past, and I think has certainly a big role in our, our politics. But I think we haven't given enough attention to democratic procedures and rules. And so that that is a theme in, in democratic theory I think we need to take on. After Donald Trump, it can't only be about deliberative democracy. We've got to add into it democratic procedures and rules. That's got to be a big part of it. So I'm, I'm hoping as a book's more widely read and colleagues see it, that they'll see that this is a, a debate that has both this popular dimension, but is deeply anchored in arguments and research that we've been doing for many, many years. It's not an easy trade-off that you're interrogating. And it was making me think the whole way uh, as I was reading it. Um, what's next for you? I've got several projects. I've been for a long time, I've been fascinated by central banks. Central banks get almost no attention from political scientists. And honestly, economists have done a terrible job with it. For economists, issues around inequality don't make any sense. And so I'm trying to put political economy more fully back into the study of central banks. I wrote a book called Fed Power, which started that. And now I'm doing a kind of a more comparative approach. Suzanne Mettler and uh, Ling Zhu and I have been doing research on uh, looking at the changing attitudes, the Affordable Care Act. When it was passed, Democrats promised that Americans would rally to it, and that turned out to be wrong. Uh, in fact, the opponents seem to rally to it more. That's changed over the last dozen years, and we've done what's called a panel study, where we've interviewed the same group of people over and over again. And so we're able to track the change and why that's occurred. We've done a series of articles, and now we're starting a book. So very excited about that as well. When you look at 2024, which is coming up awfully soon. What What's in your mind about the stakes? The stakes are huge. Uh, I mean, every one of these elections that we're having is huge because the parties are so ideological and uniform for the most part, apart from from Joe Manchin and Cinema and a few others. But for the most part, they're, you know, Republican Party is uniform for the most part. And the Democratic Party is is a bit less, but still quite uniform. Each election is very important. They get in power, they're moving full bore to their extremes. Now, having said that, I think, you know, 2024 is maybe the most uncertain election I could think of. You've got all these different factors in play that are obvious. Inflation, COVID, around the war in Europe. We'd be talking about those in any election. But I think there's a big question about whether Joe Biden's going to be running for re-election. I'm assuming he's not. Uh, and I think the evidence is going to be emerging that he isn't. So then the question is, okay, we've not had that situation of a sitting president uh, who's up for re-election who steps down. Then what? So for me, 2024 is all about uncertainty. Yep. And not to mention, will there be a comeback from a Trump or a Trumpist? I think Trump will be running. I mean, he's saying he's running. He's organizing like he's running. This guy usually does what he's saying he's going to do. Pretty scary. Okay, well, it's great to talk to you. That was Professor Larry Jacobs. Larry is at 
www.hhh.umn.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.